Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, how the heck are you? Oh my God. Well, between the imperial optimism of Biden's speech and, <laughs> and the the ongoing calls for unity, I, I still sort of am in this spot of um, not knowing how we are in this country. Yes, I'm with you. I am... Um... I mean, we are coming to our listeners for the first time since the inauguration. Um, every uh, The first couple episodes of this season took place before the inauguration on January 20th. And we are, um, I mean, we have spent the last couple of days since the inauguration, you know, doing a combination of unclenching our jaw a little <laughs> yeah you know and and resting into a slight ease at least as it's related to um like not feeling uh, tr- this this kind of trauma um 24 7 coming out of a a tweet or or the white house and yet you know the the inauguration for as lovely as it was was also steeped in problematic rhetoric and, you know, conversations that I would hope our listeners by now know um, we were both challenged by and in some cases rolling our eyes real big at. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a historic event for many reasons. And one of the one of the reasons that I like to talk about is that there was um like an advanced military presence at this year's inauguration, which is historic for many reasons, right? <laughs> yes. Because um, this country prides itself on, quote, a peaceful transfer of power. And yet what we saw in the days leading up to the inauguration was, you know, like, and I'm not just referencing the quote unquote insurrection, but the sort of rise of autocracy that many people um, on the right um, want. And while those binaries uh, are false equivalencies in many respects, they do play out in material ways for people. Um, But the, the, the greatest moment I think of, um, of the inauguration, just to spend a few minutes there mm-hmm. was the poet, um, the, the poet who, who gave Amanda Gorman, uh, Amanda Gorman. Come yeah. On. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, 
Um, and, and and then I think about how Biden mentioned Augustine in his speech, and so I'm thinking about all the Catholic universities revising their religious studies program. You know, so I'm just I'm sort of <laughs> I'm sort of laughing at at that right, right? right. the 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 juxtaposition of Biden's um, implementation of Augustine's uh, theology, and and then also the brilliance of Amanda Gordon, and also right. I just want to say that. Um, there, there is, you know, we continue to sort of live in this binary around race that it's a white and black thing. And, you know, and as a Latinx person, I, I continue to see the acceleration of the ways in which brown people are erased in this discourse. And I, and I mean, I'm glad that JLo saying uh, patriotic songs are horrid. Uh, yes. Why would you have a Puerto Rican seeing this land as my land? You know, I just am like. I know. It, there was so much ick. Yeah. And like contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and, and, you know, I, I get all up in arms. I mean, as much as I love fashion and have participated in, you know, magazines where I've been photographed in my dapper wear. And without your dapper wear on. Right, right. And without, yeah, let's, let's be real. Yeah, you can I find mean, those. Yeah, you, 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 can, can, find, you can find those pics yeah. on the interwebs, yeah. friends. But I, I, you know, the the ways in which, and I was watching MSNBC because I like those people, um, the ways in which Joy Reid in particular invoked talking about fashion feels sexist to me. Like we only, we only talk about that relative to women. And I, and I'm like, right. When, when can we begin to actually talk about women in substantive ways instead of reducing women to their fashion and linking fashion to how great they are? To, right. To their beauty, to their aesthetic, yeah. to, yeah. to their worth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was one offhanded comment that actually they came back to after they talked about, you know, what Michelle Obama and Jill Biden and Kamala Harris were wearing that said, oh, and by the way, the men are in Ralph Lauren suits. And right. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, like, thanks for letting us know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, in addition to that, and the, like, I just cringed when, I was listening, re-listening to the words that JLo was singing in that, in that, um, you know, that hem of patriarchy and and patrioticness. Um, but I really wish um, we had finished out the entire thing with M- Amanda Gorman. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wish that her words were the very last words that we went into this you know this new four years hearing um and and i wish that you know there are so many people who so many white people who are kind of taking her words and you know using them as a call to arms and and as much as i appreciate her yeah, I I, lo- I loved every bit of what she said, but there's this desire to consume the the content of and and the words and the history of black and brown bodies. Yeah, and I and I just I I I've been feeling really unsettled about that. Kind yeah. of watching all of these memes pop up and all of these. Um, you know, quote, woke white folk, uh, you know, sharing them as if that is the thing that is going to, you know, move us towards liberation. 
Well, and I saw a meme yesterday, I think, where Amanda Gorman was depicting Amanda Gordon carrying like the the president or the colonel. It was, you know, like a white stick figure man with a top hat. And um and I I think that you know, it plays into the narrative that that I've always talked about that the sort of dependency of white culture, white folks on black women as their mammy and, and that kind of dependency and extractive uh, politics is uh, not only toxic and dangerous, but it it's dehumanizing, it's dehumanizing for, for black women. And so while I celebrate the work that state people like Stacey Abrams have done we need to not fall into the trap of that dependent nature and extractive practices that that have you know been with us from day one. Right. It's um yeah, it's problematic across the board. Well, how does today find you? How are you? How are you doing? How are you doing today? You know what? So, so t- today is Monday. We're recording on Monday, and I'm very excited about today because um, we have someone who is going to be on our, our on our show today that um, has inspired me from day one. And, and so I, I'm just really excited that we get to have this person on and get to talk about their work and introduce our listeners, which it seems that our listener base is growing, um, but to introduce our listeners to this amazing activist theologian. Um, so I'm excited for today. Good. I'm excited too. I, I mentioned to you a little earlier, I'm a little tired. I donated plasma, my convalescent plasma, because y'all all know that I had COVID and now I'm trying to, you know, give my antibodies away to people that need them. Oh, and by the way, I woke up this morning to find out that someone had um, co-opted about $500 from my checking account. Oh my gosh. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a rainy, yeah. rainy day here in Chattanooga. Uh, I'm without money. I'm exhausted from plasma, but I too am radically excited about today. So as you mentioned, um, we are really, really thrilled to be welcoming Lindsay Cranks uh, to the Activist Theology podcast today. Lindsay is the co-founder of Open Table Nashville, which is um, a remarkable organization that that she will tell us more about um, when we welcome her. And the other thing that we really want you to know about Lindsay is that Lindsay's very first book, which is entitled Praying With Our Feet, is dropping in a few weeks. And we want you to not only engage with Lindsay today, but we really, really encourage you. We don't, we don't push a lot of, we don't push a lot of stuff on this podcast. It's not normally our MO, but you must pre-order this book. It is something that you, that you really need to engage with, and it will give you the kind of understanding you need to get your hands dirty in the world. 
And I think the date for the drop, and Lindsay can correct us if I'm wrong, but I think it's February 2nd. Um, and I pre ordered yeah, I, I my book last year on the first day that it was available to pre order. <laughs> um, now, of course, I've read the book in digital format and I have an advanced copy and, and I've reread that. Um, but I will be getting um, another copy. And maybe what we can do is actually. Um, give that away to one of our yes, listeners. Yes, let's um, do that. Yeah, tweet at us. Tweet at us at Activist Theology um, and let us know what you found uh, best and best about this episode. And we'll we'll do that, Robin. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, I'll be happy to send that book out. Perfect. Lindsay Cranks, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. It is so good to be with y'all today. Thank you for being here, Lindsay. Um, I know that you and I are both in Nashville, and it's a rainy day in Nashville. Um, but how are you doing? How how are you finding life these days? You know, I just um, I just came across a book um, about wintering by the author Catherine Mays, and I feel like we're in a collective season of wintering right now. Mm-hmm. I know I am in a season of wintering. Um, this is a difficult time in the work that we do in the midst of rising evictions and the pandemic and um, the economic downturn, but, um, but in my own personal life, we have a sweet six-month-old who does not have any idea how to sleep. So <laughs> we are we are muddling through that the best we can and just sending love and solidarity to everybody in a season of winter right now, a season of drawing in, of scarcity, of leanness, um, and all the parents that are trying to do life um, right now in the pandemic too. Yeah. So different and so difficult for so many. Mm. Um, Lindsay, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, how you come at this work, um, a little bit about Open Table Nashville. Um, I'd love for you to just give our folks an understanding of, of who you are and, and what you're doing in the world. Absolutely. Um, I So I was born and raised in the foothills of South Carolina and um, was in a small town growing up, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, in a, growing up in a small town with a conservative church theology background, um, knew I had to get out, um, came to Nashville to kind of run away from some of that and really found home here. Um, I've been here for since 2003. Um, I you know, I tell people with Open Table Nashville, we're a nonprofit that's trying to work itself out of a job. Um, you know, we we really in our work combine kind of three different spheres. So we com- we combine the um, analysis. We have the power analysis of a community organizer in our work, which means that we are not just trying to perpetuate cycles of poverty through charity. We are trying to break the cycles, dismantle oppressive cycles in our work and work toward collective liberation. Um, we, another sphere that we combine combine is kind of social work. And, you know, there's a lot of problematic stuff in social work, but there's evidence-based practices like trauma informed care that we draw on in our work, um, to really understand, um, really understand how to approach people with the utmost dignity and care. And then we, um, you know, I'm a chaplain. I'm, um, I work in a multi-faith context. Um, I my roots are in the Christian tradition, but certainly I draw from a lot of other um, a lot of the wisdom I've learned from friends and other traditions. 
And we, we work with faith groups. Um, we're an interfaith nonprofit, again, trying to dismantle the nonprofit industrial complex from the inside mm-hmm. and realizing that we do have a role in that and that we, that requires special attention and accountability. Um, but yeah, I've done housing rights organizing. Um, I'm a homeless outreach worker, street chaplain, um, wear a lot of different hats and I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to tell the stories that um, I've lived and survived and also to hopefully do justice to some of the stories um, that I've accompanied our friends with on the streets over these years. I know that I have um, not only appreciated your work, but also the way that you know, your approach to this, I mean, you have a very sophisticated analysis around sort of empire and in the, in the trappings of empire, but you have a, you have a real way with people. And, and one of the things that I would love for you to share and talk about is, um, you know, how, you know, folks can read this story in your book, but how that class uh, that biblical ethics class where you heard the staggering statistics about hunger and maybe relatedly poverty and that, that those statistics stayed with you through your drive back home. I think it was your sophomore year in college and, you know, for Thanksgiving. And then you sort of were confronted with an abundance of food at your family's table. And those statistics were with you and, how did you how did you go from sort of being shocked by those statistics to you know living out your theology in such tangible ways and i and i asked that question because i think that there are a lot of people i mean i i spend a lot of time online kind of doing digital pastoral care with people who are really coming to this awareness for the first time, right? That all of us, we've inherited a religious ideology that is harmful for people, right? And so, I, you know, a, a lot of the people that I connect with online, you know, f- folks are really trying to connect the dots. And I'm, and I'm wondering if by using that, that, incident, that experience in your biblical ethics class, which seems to be one of the sort of first times, at least that you mentioned in the book, that you're like, oh, I got to, I got to do something different. Can you, can you walk us through that process and, and the ways in which you, you know, began to unravel your, yourself with the roots that, were harmful, the theological roots that were harmful? Absolutely. Um, I really love the way you were your questions. So thank you for such rich questions. I, you know, I grew up um, with a lot of family members in poverty, um, struggling with incarceration in and out of institutions, you know, mental health addiction issues, which I talk about in the book. But, and I grew up kind of in this oasis in our town that on the outskirts of that oasis of having enough, there was poverty, but it was always, there was always so much distance between, you know, me and even my family members that were struggling, our church and and the kind of desert that was right on the outskirts of where there was plenty. 
And I bought into that myth that I think it's so easy to buy into um, if you're um, if you're just on the outskirts of that poverty. That you know this is the poverty is an individual problem. The poverty is because someone isn't working hard enough or isn't is deficient in some way. That that kind of lie that we're told through our society and even theology that people just need to do better and work harder and pull themselves up right and they'll be fine. I I didn't even realize I was buying into that theology, mm. into that kind of mentality until I came to Nashville and really was shepherded by some phenomenal professors and educators who slowly started to pull back the curtains for me, helped me pull those curtains back. Um, I, I When I realized what kind of a scale we're talking about um, in the world, in our nation, um, that poverty, economic, and I want to say not just poverty, but economic disenfranchisement, like mm-hmm. targeted, like thoughtful, intentional economic disenfranchisement of, of certain peoples. Um, I... I just was stunned that it was on the scale it was. And I knew that this is, was well beyond, well beyond any one person's choices. I also knew that, my God, who hasn't made a quote unquote bad choice? <laughs> like, right. I break the law every day I'm driving. Like, and yeah. I do not have the same consequences that other people have for decisions I make because of the resources, because of the support. Um, so, you know, Seeing seeing the scale at which the um, disenfranchisement was on, and then coupling that with two other things that were important, both rereading the prophets for me. I was taking classes about Jeremiah and Lamentations and and exile and empire and um, and you know like longing for justice and thinking about those left out and and God calling us to not just do the mercy and sacrifice, but to be about the justice work mm-hmm. that I, you know, I, I spent so much time reading in, in my, in growing up in our church, we spent time on the, the letters, um, the new Testament letters. We did not read the prophets like this. Mm-hmm. We did not talk about the historical context in which scripture was written, right? It was all, a vacuum for personal morality, a private relationship with God, a private salvation. And the prophets helped me understand that there were social aspects, political, economic aspects to this. Um, The the other thing I'll add is that during all this, during my kind of, you know, scales falling off my eyes, um, you know, and also reading the prophets, I had my own dark night of the soul, which I write about in the book, an experience of, tremendous need where I had a very intensive surgery and, and literally couldn't take care of myself on campus after that for quite a while. Um, and that need just hollowed me out and, and it allowed the things that had already opened up in me and around me to be worked on, um, you know, in a, in a deeper way. Um, and I, I, I don't know that it really unlocked something in me. I realized you know, we have one life, <laughs> only one life, you know, maybe reincarnation. I, there's really right. some beautiful thoughts around that. And I really hope I come back as a cat and can sleep a lot at this moment in time because my God, but no, but not to belittle the reincarnation. It, we know right now that we have one life. What are we going to do with that? You know, like I went to college trying to escape some of the 
the small town thinking, some of the family drama, trying to carve out a comfortable life for myself. Right. And I, I left college after reading, um, after being changed and transformed, knowing that I had to pour my life into this and committing to do that for the long haul, no matter what that looked like. Um, and that's led me to some pretty transformative um, transformative situations, which we can talk more about for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it, it sounds to me that, that you um, sort of came into an awareness that this idea of justice is something that is available to all people and, and not just the few. It seems to me that your your um, I mean I, I don't like using this word because of the of the the ways it gets misinterpreted, but you know the sort of the inclusion of all God's people, right? That that there was an expansiveness in in your mind for people, and 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 you really began to pursue justice with the least of these, meaning um, the underside of history. Um, liberation theology calls this the preferential option for the poor. And so you you really spend your your days and your life, you know, helping the poor. And and I don't mean that in in an offhanded way. I mean in complete solidarity with the poor and the unhoused. And one of the things that I think this country is really great at is waging a war against the poor. And some people may find your work to be radical, right? Like, why would we, why would we be in solidarity with the poor? And, and in fact, you and I have exchanged some texts that, that people, people really feel this idea of social justice is radical, maybe too radical. Can you can you help us connect the dots on why why we should be compelled as people of conscience, not not Christian, not some other religious tradition, but people who have a conscience. Why we should be in solidarity with the least of these. Yeah, so I remember, you know, early on, I was taught in my life um, by by the example of my grandmother and others who had lived in poverty to 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 serve. You know, we have this example, this beautiful example of Jesus washing feet, and so um, there's this idea that serving is important. But it wasn't until later um, in life that I I started under having more of an economic and political analysis of what was going on that I realized that you know we have to shift from models of service to models of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I literally, like we literally wash feet at open table Nashville. We have a foot clinic, you know, not right now, but we will get back to that. So we literally wash feet. We literally give people like warm socks when the temperature is as cold as it has been. We give people sleeping bags, but it doesn't end there. Um, we also, help people organize when their campsites are being displaced. We risk arrest in order to build power with people. We, 
we try to amplify people's voices, not be a voice for the voiceless because people have their own damn voices and they're really right. compelling and amazing. And so we try to be, you know, a megaphone and not um, our own microphone, which um, which I always want to point people back um, to the work of Open Table and, and the people that are surviving this enormous violence, this enormous evil of the disenfranchisement that's that's going on. But, you know, for one of the things I've noticed, I do education work at Open Table Nashville right now as well. And one of the things I notice is for some of us, you know, social justice, that language isn't radical. It's just like the, the baseline. It's And then we mm-hmm. move from that to abolition. We move from that to collective liberation. We move from that to these other things. But for a lot of people, the language of social justice, they've been indoctrinated and, and lied to that that is radical and that's going to destroy everything. You know, I, I remember <laughs> there's a story I tell in the book, but, um, you know, I was... I was a big part of um, the Occupy Wall Street movement here in Nashville when that was happening, really looking at um, really looking at all the economic and political issues that were going on um, and are still going on. But I remember one of my mom's friends from church called her up and said, you know, I'm really worried about Lindsay. You know, this is after I got arrested. and, And my mom said, well, you know, tell me what's going on. Why? And she said, well, she's, um, she's a socialist. She's, Mm. she's a communist. She's, you know, she's, this is a slippery slope. Well, my mom's friend had been listening to, I don't know if y'all remember, but the conservative radio show host Glenn Beck. Yeah. And he had told his, boy, (laughs) he had told his followers and, you know, this is that, you know, evangelical right base that we're still struggling with how to connect, how to move them from where they are. He said, And I went back and found this quote from him. He said, go on your church's website and look for the words social justice. If you find those words, you're in a lot of trouble. Your church is in trouble because those words are slippery slopes into communism and Nazism. Mm. Um, And I was like, what the actual hell? So I first I laughed because I was like, (laughs) this is ridiculous. And then I was like, you know what? I want to have a conversation with her. She was really worried about me being, you know, a quote unquote socialist or communist because I believed in universal health care. Health care is a human right. And I was like, I told my mom, I said, mom, next time I'm home, invite her over. Let's talk. Like I want her to hear the stories of people who don't have health care and that I'm working with on a day-to-day basis. My friends without health care who are dying in their 40s and 50s on our streets, the mothers without health care, the children, the adults. Um, and we got together and, you know, I don't know if she ever came out of that conservative malaise, but I know that seeds were planted in her, um, with the stories that I told and, and I told her, you know, I was like, I'm radicalized by Jesus and the prophets. <laughs> like they were the yeah. first ones who radicalized me. I've certainly read a lot of other things and been moved in a lot of other ways too. But, um, you know, it's, scandalous the love if we really believe that the image of god is in everyone that that we are to love everyone that means we want house housing that means we want health care that means we're going to fight for the same resources for our friends our people our neighbors um, that some of us have and so so we meet people where they are you know I talk to a lot of conservative groups and I meet them where they are and I always push. I'm always pushing those next steps. I'm always planting seeds 
Um, and then with groups that are a little bit more further along, we go from there. Um, but I try to have compassion on where people are so we can call in and not just call out, even though there is a time to call out. <laughs> um, for me as a white person in the South, I have a lot of calling in to do. Um, and and that's that's part of my work as well. I wonder how you are, um, how, how the work has been changed based on your, your evolution, your personal evolution in understanding justice through the eyes of the gospel, but then also engaging with the breadth of, um, Christianese, types of people throughout Nashville that are on in in some cases on a on a very different uh, understanding of the commands of Jesus um, when it comes to the work that you do in solidarity with the poor I, I think I think about here in Chattanooga you know we have um, some some pretty significant um, uh, categories probably self self-imposed categories of uh, of ch- of church um or communities and i, I this this is going to sound horrible to say but i'm going to say it um i when i am working at our shelter downtown i can almost pinpoint the the type of um, faith background that the person that I'm engaged with has based on the way they speak to and and um, work alongside um, people that are um, that are that are there at the shelter for for uh, you know warmth and and services and and a, and a meal and 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 friendship and solidarity how how have you found your faith has been, I don't want to say challenged, but like, have, have you, have you been disquieted or discomforted um, kind of in your being? Or have you found that that solidarity that you just spoke of and being able to walk alongside them um, just looks different from the place that you start? Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is going to kind of get exactly to what you're saying. Um, So feel free to ask again, but you know, I, my faith has gone through enormous, um, evolutions. I have had, you know, it's not been a, it's not been a forward trajectory that just goes up and up and up and is stronger and stronger. And now I'm this like Titan of faith, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It is. I mean, seeing the injustice of the world and feeling it up close, holding the people's hands who die, burying person after person after person after person after person who dies in their 30s, in their 20s, in their 40s, um, because they didn't have housing, they didn't have health care, they lived in a, they spent most of their life institutionalized. It it utterly wrings you out. It it destroys your faith in humanity and in a loving God, and it is only through honestly, my relationships with other people and um, wisdom um, from elders to practice Sabbath and to, yes. and to reconnect with nature and to spend, to have a, have a contemplative side that balances out that active activism side 
that I have um, maintained faith, I will say, and 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 it is still is a deep well for me um, to draw on in in the struggles of the world and um, to keep going, to stay in this for the long haul. And um, and you know sometimes it's not it, it's rarely the people themselves that we work alongside in the margins that cause me to question my faith. It's the systems. It's the people mm, maintaining yes. the status quo. It is. It is so discouraging sometimes, and I think we have to name that. Um, and so, so I have seen more faith. I find God more in tent cities, you know, than I do in churches. Um, someone asked me a while back. Um, I was at the monastery. I was. I, I used to before pre-pandemic and pre-motherhood. Honestly, used to go take retreat at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. Um, the Trappist Monastery there. And one time a woman asked me, she said, you know, and then the talking places, most of it's silent. She said, what church do you go to? And, you know, I, I said, well, I'm, you know, Andrew and I are kind of attending this Episcopal one, but I should have said to her, like, my church is not a building. My church is the streets. Like, that is honestly where I was ordained and called. But it's also where I find God um, marching alongside folks, chanting in the streets, laying down and dying on the interstate for, you know, four minutes, one minute for every hour Mike Brown's body lay in Ferguson in the sweltering heat, like, and then rising again together. You cannot get more sacred and spiritual than that dying and rising together. Um, And that is where I find um, my church. And so, um, so somehow, um, somehow my friends, you know, on the streets have saved me and saved my faith. Um, and, and my movement friends have, have done that, um, for me and I'm endlessly grateful. And and those stories are in the book and I, it challenges the whole missionary idea, right? That the Christian goes into these places and takes God. God is already there everywhere where there is suffering. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for redirecting that for me, Lindsay. I mean, I, I think as you were answering the question, I realized how um, minimizing my initial question probably came off, and 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 that wasn't my intention. Um, although intentions are what they are, I said it anyway. Um, I think my um, my frustration has been exactly in that, in the knowing that God is in the midst and in the places and in every crevice of the lives and times of, um, you know, all of our friends um, on the streets and and in communities with need um, and seeing a pervasive um kind of savior complex within, you know, these good white Christians that come to, you know, wh- do what they consider to be kind of temporary work that they, you know, they they go and they do and they come home and they forget. Um, and and so thank you. But thank you for recentering that for me. Thanks for for redefining it in in a way that um, that that uh makes me rethink my question and makes me rethink um, how I stated it. Well, I also think you, you nailed it there, Anna, like until we realize, until the people doing that service work in that charity framework realize that our liberation is bound up together, we are only capable of charity. We are only right. capable of paternalistic 
charity solutions that make people feel good and never change the system that perpetuates the violence. Correct. And so that kind of we are that kind of collective liberation framework is something that we have to be introducing to those folks um, in in ways, and that's and that's not everyone's role. <laughs> that's one of my roles, um, but but that is utmost importance. And so I, I do want to honor that that you are pointing to as well. Yeah, and, and we have to also remember that oftentimes those systems that you speak of include the church. And, and, and there are times where the church, capital C church, has to also be troubled and disrupted and in some cases dismantled in order for the system of charity that's being perpetuated to be thwarted enough that collective liberation is a possibility. Amen. Lindsay, I, I love how you talk about your... I don't know if you would say your faith or your religion or um, certainly I think probably your theology was not just renewed, but is um, and not restored, but comes alive with those who are on the streets or the underside of history in it reminds me of a story um, and y'all might have heard this story um, that where Jürgen Moltmann who is a German reform theologian who talked about um, sort of a sense of coming alive with with the God of hope um, after he, he he was in war. He was drafted into um, into the war in in the mid forties, and um, he was he was at a fence, and there were there was him and, and another soldier, and the soldier next to him was killed. And that in that in that moment of sort of feeling as though his life was spared and whatnot, that. In that tragedy, that he sort of um, comes alive with a sense of a theology of hope, and you know he goes on to to write a lot of different books that has influenced the Christian tradition, but it it's it sounds it sounds very similar to me when you when you talk about our friends on the streets, and I know. Last on well, 2019, um, Aaron and I spent several nights out um, driving the van and and getting our friends to a warmer place because it was so cold. And you know, there's something about um, being confronted with the tragedy that is poverty that. There, there's a sense of coming the deeper folds of life, I guess, is how I would say it. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I mean, it was so wonderful to have y'all out in the streets with us last winter and to have your help. Um, you know, we forget, we forget that, you know, and even 
like even me, like when I'm doing education work and like I'm wrapped up in like, you know, the inauguration and thinking about all this stuff that it's happening and how beautiful the poem was, that that's not even a reality for our friends on the streets. They didn't hear the poem. They they don't have any faith in Biden's administration because right. they've suffered under Republican and Democrats alike. Even with Obama, right. they didn't have housing or health care. And so what's going to be different for them? I think it's really important that we 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 always try to see and and not just try to see ourselves, but listen to the voices from below. Always thinking about looking at the underside of of you know, like you've already mentioned and that I talk about in the book, looking at the underside of our city, looking at the underside of our history, underside of theology, whose voices were left out and scripture, right? Um, I mean, these are important questions because if we are not in actual relationship with people who are being cast out right now, then we will continue to be distant from them. And we will forget that our liberation is so interconnected that, that we are called to do tangible work to change the fabric of our society um, and the conditions in which our people are living. And that is the work of what some people call the kingdom of God, what some people call beloved community, what others call collective liberation, um, to actual, actually realize that in the here and now. Um, and, and you and Aaron did that with us as we literally like took our friends from the cold into warmth that night. It's a, it takes a village. I mean, I don't, I know that that gets said a lot, but I think that if we think that one person can do this, I mean, I even think about Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus had lots of friends around him as he sought to reform the system of Judaism that he found problematic. And I think that what you model to us is a type of collective orientation and, and companionship along the way that does create conditions for us to have a different kind of world. And that's what I found in your book. That's what I found in the way that you live. And I'm so thrilled that, you know, you shared your story and we we're getting the word out about your book, which drops next week. I can't wait. And I'm so excited for people to engage with your story and, and the book and, and folks, I I'm going to be receiving another copy of the book. And so if you tweet at us at activist theology, I'd be happy to send out the book. Let us know what you found insightful in this episode and let us know how you're going to get your hands dirty. I'd be more than happy to send out my extra copy. Lindsay, as we wrap up and we um, move um, back into our our worlds of of care and and liberation for one another, I'd love for you to um, both share with our folks here at the Activist Theology Podcast how they can be in touch with you. But if you would um, give our listeners a little bit of an understanding before that on. Um, how they can 
be involved in the best ways in the communities that they find themselves. Um, you know, we've talked a lot uh, in this episode about the difference between charity and relationship, um, between, um, you know, the social justice movement as, you know, radical or not radical enough. I, I know that the majority of our listeners are already um, you know, radicalized um, in the way that your mother's friend uh, feared you were. Um, but I also recognize that there are many who listen who may not have um, or 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 be able to identify the best ways for them to be involved with um, their what I know to be soon to be friends that that are on the street. What 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 tips or advice would you give them in that? And then also, please let us know how we can be in touch with you moving forward. Yeah. So to all the fellow radicals out there, <laughs> we, hello. We are um, you know all in different seasons. I mentioned um, feeling like I was in a wintering season at the top of the program, and so you know a lot of a lot of your listeners might already be doing so much and they're exhausted. So I encourage folks that are already weary from the work to find ways of rest and find, find cycles of replenishment and to really lean into that. And then for folks who are kind of um, chomping at the bit, ready to plunge in more, you know, the, the two sure ways I've found to really go deeper are through proximity, closer proximity and relationships. Um, so that could mean that you begin to build a relationship with someone in your community who's disenfranchised, disaffected, and, and to have that relationship not be a paternalistic one, but to try to be one of mutual respect, um, where you're valuing their dignity, um, or maybe it's proximity and relationship to an organization who, who is really grounding their work in a framework for justice. Um, it's really important that the organizations we participate in have that framework and that they have, that they really value the voices and leadership of people who are directly affected. Um, and those are the kind of organizations that I would say plug into give monthly, you know, open table Nashville for those who are in these parts is a really great place to start. And we've got great resources online and, and post stuff all the time, calls to action, um, what's going on in our city and with homelessness across the U S. So that's something to consider. And I'd also say, you know, another tiny step that we can take is to just keep, you know, thinking about how important relationship is, connection, affirming the dignity of people, just to keep some supplies in our car. You know, if we're living in a place where when we drive, we see people on the medians, we see people asking for help, it is not difficult at all to put Sock, extra socks, you know, warm socks in the winter, hand warmers, you know, protein snacks, um, high protein snacks, warm gloves and the summer bottles of water and stuff in our car so that we are able to respond with compassion, care and connection when we see people, you know, we are, we, we need to be meeting the immediate needs. We need to be connecting on a human level and showing kindness until we can transform these systems. Um, and even after, of course, we transform the systems. But, um, but yeah, how can we cultivate a more compassionate lens and a more compassionate everyday life um, so we're acknowledging the suffering we see and respond to it? And all of us will have to answer, I think, to you know what we did with our time. Um, and I, I hope that we 
can make our lives count in some small way, make this time count. It is not just about building up security for ourselves and and safety and all this stuff. It's about trying to further the work of collective liberation. And that's, um, and that's what I'm thrilled to be in with you both and all of your listeners who are on this journey. Yes. And, and then we're also on social media. So I'd say on Instagram, on Facebook, and Open Table Nashville's on Twitter. I have not made the plunge, but probably will soon. You can look at Lindsay Krinks and Open Table Nashville and connect with us there. Um, there's also, we have websites, um, opentablenashville.org and lindsaykrinks.com, which is a website that I feel a little bit uncomfortable about that the publishers made me, but I've never had a website before, <laughs> so it's new. But there's information there for anyone that needs it. And friends, you should go and pre-order Praying With Our Feet. You will get it very shortly if you pre-order it this week. And um, we would encourage you to try to pre-order from your local bookstore or from an indie bookstore online um, if you are able. Uh, Lindsay, we're really grateful that you spent this hour with us. Um, I'm, I am personally grateful for the work that you're doing and the way that you are um, living out your call in real time. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I loved this. I love this conversation. So, so good to be with y'all. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when you have your next book or your next baby or book and baby, <laughs> you're more than welcome to come back on and, and share that story. And I know that it's stories like yours yes. that help people understand what's at stake in, in, in the world Yes, for, for the underside. And so I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and really pouring your life into this book that is a beautiful sort of composition of story and prose and analysis. I can't wait for people to read it. I can't wait for people to be motivated and compelled to get their hands dirty. Uh, We do this podcast every week to invite people into a different kind of of theology, a different kind of ethical orientation, which is rooted in getting our hands dirty to reshape the world into the world that we long to inhabit. And you're a big part of that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the solidarity, friends. Well, friends, if you want to tweet at us, uh, Join us on Instagram, join us on Facebook, any of the socials. Um, Don't forget we are at Activist Theology and that Activist and Theology share a T. You can find us at ActivistTheology.com or in the episode notes, you will see how to connect with Robin and I personally. We are thankful that you were on this journey with us. We're thrilled to be back with you for this amazing start to season two. And as we get our hands dirty and as we search for a way to dismantle systems that harm Dr. Robin, until next week. Let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? 
Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. 